Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bradley Lectures podcast. I'm Tal Fortgang, your host and a senior research associate here at the American Enterprise Institute, where I focus on constitutionalism, republicanism, and the foundations of our political order. Today's lecture is called China After Communism, and it examines China in the aftermath of its economic reforms of the late 20th century. But actually, it serves to teach us quite a bit about our own political assumptions here in the United States. So one of the great lines from the lecture you're about to hear is delivered tongue-in-cheek. Quote, China is the one human society which is spontaneous. Thus quips Arthur Waldron, professor of international relations at the University of Pennsylvania. But of course, this is not really the case. Like any nation comprising millions, or in this case, billions of individuals, it's a collection of attachments, local, familial, provincial, or religious, that forms a human society. As Germany and Italy and the United States were constructed once out of tribes and territories seeking some common ground, whether true or mythical, China was too. Waldron uses this point to argue for something more controversial, that China could and should be fertile ground for a democracy movement after its success with liberalization in general. Politics, in other words, could be downstream from economics once the citizen is reasserted as the primary organizing unit. Americans have recently been confronted with the alternative, which actually transpired. China has grown massively in economic terms, though it's hard to say precisely how massively, because their economic data are largely contrived. But with economic growth has hardly come political liberalization. Instead, as crystallized in the recent scandal involving the Houston Rockets of the NBA, bowing to Chinese censorship, the state has used its economic clout to double down on authoritarianism, quashing freedom movements in Hong Kong, imprisoning religious minorities, especially Muslims, and menacing not just international corporations and American citizens, but American allies in Taiwan, Japan, and Korea. Nonetheless, Waldron's argument about the paths China could choose at the turn of the century remains fascinating. It makes for a wonderful case study about the nature of political order. How much commonality is really necessary for the formation of a free society? What's the role of intangible factors such as social trust? What is the role of military power in ensuring stability? I'd like to encourage our listeners to think about what the last 50 years of Chinese reform, growth, and political developments might teach us about our own national project and the fundamental things such as our constitution, our culture, our judicial independence that allow for political stability and cohesion. I would also, more flippantly, like to encourage our listeners to like and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to it, and to follow us on Twitter, at Bradley Lectures. And with that, let's go to University of Pennsylvania professor Arthur Waldron's 2000 Bradley Lecture, China After Communism. Last year, we had the 50th anniversary of uh, Chinese communism, and uh, the place looked pretty good. Uh, uh, cities like Shanghai, for instance, are absolutely as clean and sparkling and affluent as I can ever remember. Uh, the blood of Tiananmen Square has long since been forgotten. Uh, Chinese leaders are sought-after guests in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, and when they speak, they speak about many things, but they make one thing perfectly clear, which it seems to me they have no intention or plan to alter the communist system of authority. Now, there is actually a fairly strong constituency in the West and in the United States that is 
they're not exactly in favor of this. They don't exactly endorse dictatorship. But on the other hand, they do fear chaos with good reason, and they would argue that China's pretty much on the right track. They're in better shape than Russia. They're getting freer and freer. And uh, the, the current situation is likely to continue. Things are going to expand. Things are going to get better. And this then makes it inevitable that China begins to return uh, to the place that she has traditionally occupied in U.S.-Asian policy, which is right smack at the center. Just as we reserved a place on the U.N. Security Council for China even before uh, the U.N. was founded and at a time when China was by no means genuinely a great world power, uh, so today we are reserving a place uh, around the table of nations for the strong, stable, prosperous, peaceful China that we look forward to. And this appeals very much to American optimism, and it has deep roots in American foreign policy. But, of course, China's only going to be able to play this sort of constructive role if her domestic situation is in order. Now, the USSR ended with a thud. And I think there are many people who believe that the end of the USSR, of the communist system there, could have been handled better. In fact, one of the ways of understanding our China policy today is to say, with only slight distortion, I think, that it is the policy that might well have been adopted toward the Soviet Union had someone other than Ronald Reagan been president. In the near future, and I think we're maybe talking about the next U.S. presidential administration or the one following that, I don't see how China can escape some sort of fundamental political reconstruction that I think is going to be as significant in its scale and in its scope as what happened in the USSR, even though it will probably not follow exactly uh, the same pathways. And what I want to do is explore a little bit why I think this is the case and what some of the implications are. I think it's very important that our own policy thinkers be alive to this possibility. We wouldn't want to be caught napping again uh, by a major uh, geopolitical uh, crisis of this sort. In particular, given the degree to which China is now directly involved in the international community, really in many ways much more than the old Soviet Union was, uh, shocks which began in China could ramify uh, quite substantially into areas such as international financial markets where the Soviet experience didn't, have, didn't really have a tremendous effect. Now, how, did this, how might this change occur? Well, I well remember in the early 1980s when I was making my first trips to China, and I should thank the late Lars Eric Lindblad, for making that possible. And of course, Lars Eric, it's a long story, but he lost his money because he invested too, too much in China. I remember well, in the countryside, seeing along the roads, these enormous great farmer's markets, which had just sprung up spontaneously once it was said that it was okay to trade. Miles and miles, every kind of little shop, people selling uh, food, uh, this and that, you know, people uh, looking for spouses, people having their hair cut, people having their fortunes told, without anybody planning it. This was quite spontaneous. And one of the wonderful things about markets and economic structures, at least up to a certain point, is that they arise spontaneously. They are self-actualizing. Although they can't grow beyond a certain level without institutions. But 
Government structures, constitutional structures are very different. They are not self-actualizing. The business of designing constitutions and considering what system of laws and structures is best for a society is a very profound area of research in political theory and law. Furthermore, history suggests that when you're dealing with political change, there's no such thing as what I call the asymptotic approach, which is what I think a lot of people expect for China, that here's freedom and democracy here, and China's coming up like this, and it's kind of coming closer and closer and closer. And out there, when time equals infinity, at the limit, it sort of crosses over. And it imperceptibly becomes something else. That's not the way history works. There are bound to be discontinuities, and these may last a few days or a few months, or they may last, as they did for China in the, in the 20th century, for nearly the whole of that period. Now, this is something which we have not traditionally paid a lot of attention to. And I'd like to say something about why this is. And that is that in spite of the reality of Chinese history, which is extremely turbulent, Chinese history is extremely turbulent, we have an idea there's a sort of a stereotype in our minds of a China that has a natural unity. There's a recognition that European countries like Italy had to be made. You know the famous saying of one of the, uh, well, it's Manzoni's son-in-law, Desaglio. Uh, we have made Italy, now we must make Italians. There's a regular industry in the academy who invented France, you know, how was Germany created, this and that. But somehow when you get to China, the idea is that sort of, it's always been there. It always will be. China is the one human society which is spontaneous and natural. And I think this reflects in many ways the complete mystification that many Westerners feel when they first encounter, whether it's Chinese people whose physical features they have difficulty reading, and therefore they tend to confuse them with one another, or Chinese culture, which although quite diverse, is nevertheless equally incomprehensible, whichever facet you're looking at. And the way I sum this up is how many times have you heard somebody say, well, I'm sure they'll find a very Chinese way of doing that. Well, it's perfectly true. You can say that was a very French or a very Italian or a very American. You're getting at an aspect of national character. But I'd remind you, that's fairly superficial. When it comes to things like how legal decisions are made, how prices are determined, uh, whether what sort of medications are used, and so forth and so on. Uh, we long ago, I hope, have given up the idea that there is uh, you know, special uh, physics or physiology, uh, or for that matter, economics, that somehow goes with China. But there is a conviction, and this is the one I want to come back to, on the part of Westerners. And one of the problems is that the Chinese share this belief to some extent, which is that ethnicity uh, equals cohesion equals politics. That just the fact that there's this great mass of people who seem on first inspection to be so similar indicates that they are, in fact, they have a kind of a mysterious unity. And therefore, issues of cohesion and political structure and so forth that would come up if you were dealing with, say, uh, Brits or Americans uh, or Africans or you name it, somehow for China, no, no, just the fact that they're Chinese defines the whole thing. But in fact, if you look at Chinese history, really, really the burden of historical research uh, for the last 50 years or so has been to show uh, what an extraordinary creation the historical Chinese state with its long continuity uh, uh, and so forth has been. This is something uh, that took a lot of doing. And it was based on very, very sophisticated 
and fortunate, in many cases, choices. Uh, and it's bound together by mechanisms that can be understood if you analyze them. It's always been based on radical simplification, standardization, and construction for modular units. In traditional times, it was the farming family. During the period of nationalism in the 20th century, there was great stress on the idea uh, of, uh, of the fact that we're all members of the same race, we're from the same womb. The Chinese expression is tongba, which literally means from the same womb. Uh, and under the communists, that I, this idea that we're all members of the masses, that we're kind of homogenous, and therefore, somehow there is a unity. But this unity is precarious, as the Chinese know very well. It was Sun Yat-sen who said that China could be a sheet of loose sand, that is to say a lot of little hard pieces, which nevertheless doesn't cohere. And my old colleague, Professor Dennis Twitchett, recalls a text which we've never been able to track down, perhaps from the Sung Dynasty, talking about China as a wall of pebbles a wall of pebbles. There was a very, very clear understanding in Chinese history of just how tricky all of this was. There are only two institutions in China which are genuinely go among the provinces. One is the military, and the other is, of course, the Communist Party. But again, in both of those cases, it's only at the very highest levels that it does so. Most people make their careers entirely within the confines of their province. Below that, the basic building block is the unit, or the Danwei. Uh, this is where, under communism, you spent your life. It might be a factory, it might be a farm, it might be an orchestra, it might be a cruise ship. I spent a summer uh, working on a ship that cruised up and down the Yangtze River, and that crew had been on there for 30 years. This was their home. This is where uh, you make your friends, you receive your pay, you get your education. This is where you get your medical care. This is where you get your housing. This is who takes care uh, of your retirement. All of these things are Dan Wei. Now, in addition to being the building block of society, in a sense, this was the moral unit. This was the moral community. It was within the Dan Wei that you had obligations, that you had ties with other people, that there was an expectation of reciprocity, and so forth and so on. Now, economically, the Danway made no sense at all. It just, that's no way to structure an economy. But the fact is that people lived in them, and not only were they the social community, they were suffused with communist moral ideas about service, about selflessness, about honesty, and all of this sort of thing. The chief thing that economic development does is it leads to differentiation and diversity and inequality. If you take the current gross domestic product of the People's Republic of China, almost 50% of it is accounted for by essentially by three greater municipalities and their hinterlands. Greater Guangzhou in the south, greater Shanghai in the east, and Beijing, Tianjin in the north. These three urban areas are half of the whole GDP. If you look at China's current exports, 40% of them come from only one of those areas. 40% of all, almost 40%, come from Guangdong alone. So you have a growing gap between these rich urban areas and the rest of the country, which has political consequences. Rich areas don't need the center. Guangdong is entirely, that's basically the area near Hong Kong, is entirely self-sufficient in capital, in its external trade, doesn't need anything from Beijing, doesn't need anything from Beijing at all. 
On the other hand, the poor areas desperately need uh, redistribution. So you have a situation now where the central government is in the business of trying to allevi alleviate poverty in poor areas, uh, but without being able to command the resources that are being generated uh, in the rich area. Well, what's happening to the Dan Way, to this unit that we started with? Well, it's being destroyed. Essentially what's happening, as you've probably heard about the reform of state enterprises and the, the reform of the economy and so forth, <clears throat> people who had worked in Danways are being told either that they're fired, that they can't work there anymore, or that they are only being paid, say, 500 RMB a month, uh, it's what, $50, something like that. It's not, it's not enough to live on in, a, in, a, in an urban center. And all of the expectations about health care, housing, uh, pensions, and so forth are simply being uh, abolished. To be an entrepreneur in China involves almost always bribing officials. And once you've bribed an official, of course, you're in violation of the law, which means that you can be blackmailed. You can be selectively uh, prosecuted. Administration and politics under such circumstances uh, where personal enrichment is easy is also uh, demoralizing. Well, how do you resolve uh, disputes today in China? Well, the way it's done is that either the party decides what to do, and this can be rather capricious. Uh, Gong Li was introduced, this latest movie that she's made. Uh, apparently, the party uh, had some 14 or some objections to it, the things that had to be changed. But as she said, they have no guidelines. In other words, you, you make the movie first, and then you show it. And they say, well, we want these changes. But they can't tell you ahead of time what they want. It's a very, very uh, capricious system. You, uh, one way of moderating it is through bribes uh, and threats. You might say, well, there's a better way to do this. What we should do is set up some objective rules that everybody knows about, and then we could have objective adjudicating mechanisms, such as courts, to decide. Sounds like a good idea. But if you do that, what is the Communist Party going to do? Because the party's role, as we all know, is to guide this kind of thing, guide society, tell people what to do. And if you've got an objective mechanism that's already doing this, then the party uh, is a fifth wheel. You need government and laws, and you need legitimate and objective ones. Communism, which intervenes all the time, doesn't give you any of those things. But if the communists decide to stay in power, you're going to have this constant capricious intervention. The problem is that under communism, capital was wasted abundantly. And I'm afraid that capital is still wasted in China in lots of ways, and that this wasting is now, well, decades ago it totally distorted smokestack industry. Well, it's distorting the information industry today. They're doing the same kind of damage to the growth areas of entrepreneurship and high-tech and so forth uh, that they did to other areas. Now, entrepreneurs are just one part of the whole private sector of society. And basically, the party, although this sector is developing, the party is not yet reconciled to it. So it sits on the entrepreneurs to some extent. And the reason is the same, that it controls the press or it stifles religion uh, or that it imprisons dissidents. All of these groups, whether they're entrepreneurs or they are religious believers, uh, whatever they are, they all require, as we all do, a certain kind of a moral space in society. And communism doesn't provide that moral space. Now, it may be developing. 
There may be forces that are prying China open in that respect, but the government isn't really doing it. Well, under these circumstances, suppose that you've decided you're going to maintain Communist Party rule, because I think that's what they... That's what they're trying to do. That's one of the reasons, if you look at the way that they're designing the new economy, they're trying to be sure that the party somehow is still very much more in control than they would be if it were all privatized. Well, my impression is that some of the Chinese leaders believe that you can import political legitimacy uh, from abroad. Uh, recently, the Chinese president, Jiang Zemin, was in the United States. Uh, he was greeted by a truly stellar turnout, even more stellar, I hate to say it, than this wonderful group that's turned out uh, tonight uh, in New York, and he was interviewed on TV. Now, I ask you this. Did the Chinese president ever spend an hour on Chinese TV answering questions? The answer is no. Uh, in the recent Hong Kong elections, there was an interesting account of the leader, one of the candidates, how he went into a housing block, and he went floor by floor pressing doorbells, talking to people, asking for their votes. Uh, when was the last time any Chinese leader uh, did that? In the Taiwan election, James Sung reputedly visited every one of Taiwan's approximately 3,000 villages in pursuit of votes. And he came close second. Can anybody imagine a Chinese leader going from village to village to village, giving talks, kissing babies, you know? It's inconceivable. Well... There are a lot of countries where that's done. In India, parliamentary candidates go out to the back of beyond because that's where the votes are. But one of China's basic structural problems is that there are no autonomous local politics, and there's no particular reason for a top leader to go to the countryside, and there's every reason for him to go to Washington, and there's no rubber chicken circuit. Now, Gorbachev hoped that he could unleash glasnost, and it would help him as he got out his sort of scraper and went at scraping. He wanted to scrape all of these encrusted scales of corruption off of the Communist Party to reveal the good, clean, hard metal of pure Leninism underneath. But of course, the more he scraped, he discovered that there was basically there's only rust. There is not any good metal at all. The system is, in fact, corruption. So if under the pressure of glasnost, you begin destroying your system, you're not replacing it with anything. All you're doing is getting rid of your chain of command. So uh, in China now, they have an anti-corruption campaign. And people are regularly brought up and shot for being corrupt. I'm sure they are, but everybody's corrupt. I said, this isn't right. Uh, this is what the criminologists call generalized deterrence. You just find somebody, shoot him, and figure that's going to scare everybody. But criminologists have discovered that you have to find the guy that's guilty and shoot him. And then that's what scares the other people. My wife said, she's Chinese, she said, well, you know, I think that these Chinese people, they hate all of these guys so much that so if you just shoot one, it doesn't really matter. They're all very happy with it. But the point is that if you are an official and you see that the, that the center is capriciously intervening to take people like the mayor of Beijing or somebody from Fujian and just kill them and destroy them without any way really of protecting yourself, what you're going to do is going to pull in. You're going to stop listening to them. This is not a way to consolidate your power base. This is a way to destroy your power base. So the anti-corruption campaign and attempts to get at it, in fact, are uh, counterproductive, if, it, if, if that can be said. In Hong Kong, you have all of the foundations in place for democracy. You have a free press. You have a very high level of education. You have affluence. You have long-established habits of voting. But the voting system is rigged. And... Even the people who succeed in getting elected under this rigged voting system have almost no influence at all 
on what the executive does. The real power doesn't come from below. It comes from Beijing to their, uh, the governor whom they install, Mr. Dong Jihua right now, Dong Jianhua. And his popularity has been sinking. He now has 62% negatives. Now, what's going on here? The basic unit, what's the basic unit of a democracy? Well, the basic unit of a democracy is a citizen, a self-sufficient person, responsible, informed, and so forth. At least that's what we hope. Now, in Hong Kong, you've already got citizens. In China and in other areas like that, you either have them or you are making them. There's a lot. All of this change is producing citizens. They're rolling off. They're rolling out of the colleges. They're rolling out of the schools. There are hundreds of thousands of them. But what happens if you have citizens and you have no democracy for them to participate in? Well, it's a kind of, it's like unemployment. This is the civic equivalent of unemployment, and it leads to tension. Well, it seems to me that really China right now faces three possibilities. The first is military rule. Uh, the second is disorder. And this disorder could either be sort of low-level kind of entropy, or it could be quite uh, dangerous. And the third alternative is genuine political reform. Well, let me start with military rule. And I would say that actually we're not far from that right now. One of the most impressive new buildings in Beijing is the Central Military Commission. I was really, I saw it for the first time this summer. It's beautiful, great big cube of a building, fine, I didn't, you can't get close to it, but nice polished uh, stone, a granite or something outside, really, really first-rate building. And the story is that there's a huge suite of offices in there reserved for Jiang Zemin. And he has said that in the year 2003, he's going to give up the presidency, which is to say he's going to give up his position in the government. He's going to give up uh, his job as general secretary, which is to say he's going to give up his position in the party. But he is going to stay on in the Central Military Commission. Well, what does this mean? What it means is if these three jobs, the most powerful and the most important one, is not the party, not the government, it's the military. Furthermore, the ideology, which is very much stressed in China today, is not communism. It's very much uh, nationalism. And that typically is the ideology uh, of a military. Uh, they step in because they want to save the country. How could you get a formalized shift from party rule to straight military rule? I mentioned earlier this problem that arises of resolving disputes. Now, in business, Disputes are resolved very largely by blackmail, bribes, hostage-taking, influence, threats, this and that. Now, what happens if the party itself cannot agree about what it's going to do? There's no mechanism for the party to decide what to do if there's a rigid disagreement, except to bring in the military. And this is what has happened repeatedly in Chinese history. And let me just say quickly, we in the West being schooled in European sociology, tend to think of society as being divided horizontally. You've got an elite across the top. You've got a middle class. You've got an urban proletariat. You've got agriculture. It's a kind of a layer cake. And conflicts are between layers. You know, the proletarians are coming up in the city, but those reactionary peasants are coming in to hit them with pitchforks. I mean, that's the way we look at it. China has those layers, but I think that, the, that historically, in the last century, the politically significant uh, splits have been vertical. China is about who's above you and who's below you. And you tend to get systems that the things tends to split down the middle. So you have certain members of the elite who are quarreling, and then they pull in other people, and they pull in other things. 
And next thing you know, you have a situation like the Chinese Civil War, 45-49. People said, well, Mao was the leader of peasant army. It was true. But so was Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, as far as the social background of these contending forces, you cannot distinguish them. They're the same. They're not fighting about differences that are horizontal. They're fighting about vertical differences. This then brings me to the problem of disorder. Of course, uh, it's alarmist to talk about a full civil war. I certainly don't expect it. I hope it's not going to happen. But you could have a kind of, if you project current trends, you could have a kind of entropic uh, breakdown. Right now, there's a kind of steady secular rise in things like social unrest, uh, violence, uh, criminality, corruption, and so forth. And all of this weakens, steadily weakens and erodes the party's ability to exercise any kind of control. Uh, power begins to fall into the hands of thugs uh, at the local level, and indeed at the national level. And occasionally you have attempts to lash out, uh, but they don't really solve anything. And this kind of an environment, after a certain point, uh, becomes bad for citizens and it becomes bad for development. What do we do in the United States if and when you begin to have something like this happen, whether it's fairly mild, just slippage, or whether it's more acute? When we begin to hear, instead of one voice from China, so we can say, well, we Americans, of course, have the most profound respect for the Chinese point of view, but instead you have several Chinese points of view being expressed, several different Chinese tugging on Superman's cape, saying, come and help me, and promising things, saying, if you get with me, I'll fix this for you, I'll fix that for you. Have we thought through what we would do under those circumstances? I would argue that we haven't really thought this one through yet, and the reason, one of the reasons is, in addition to just the sheer unpleasantness of this topic, is that because if we have this belief in China's sort of natural order. We think of uh, disorder as being an aberration. It's odd that all those little blue ants are sort of, uh, you know, swarming or whatever it is that they do. Uh, maybe if we wait, they'll all get back and they'll just be carrying leaves and everything around the way they're supposed to. I mean, we, ha we, we have this sort of a stereotype. It's quite wrong, and it leads us consistently to underestimate uh, the precariousness and the volatility of Chinese society. Over-centralization strains the system and leads to splits. Well, the way you do that is by encouraging local communities, local democracy, and then built on the local democracy, uh, provincial democracy, and built on that uh, national democracy. And it's interesting that that was exactly the political structure that the Qing dynasty in 1908 promised. They were in the process of installing a constitutional monarchy with an elected legislature, responsible cabinet, so forth and so on, when they were forced to abdicate by a military coup and a revolution in 1912. And in fact, the first parliament elected continued to sit one way or another, always amidst controversy in China, until 1924, when the military finally cleared it away. A lot of people treat advocacy of democracy in China as hopelessly naive. Uh, and in fact, most China specialists are a little bit shocked by the idea. I have to tell a story on myself. In 1989, one of our great American journalists, whom I think some of you know, Claudia Rosette of the Wall Street Journal, uh, was constantly asking me about what was going on at uh, Tiananmen Square and so forth. And so on. one day she had been pestering me, and she said, well, what should they do, Arthur? Should they have an election? 
And I remember, I said, whoa, whoa no, 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 I shouldn't do that. That would be destabilizing. They have to. And then I thought, wait a second, Arthur, what are you? You sound like one of these appalling drips. Uh, you're somebody who thinks of yourself as being in favor of human rights, democracy, liberty, so forth and so on. And here you're saying that you shouldn't have an election in China. Well, well, why exactly? Well, this was a very uncomfortable moment of self-revelation. And I want to thank Claudia for forcing it on me. Because I think, in fact, the only way that China is going to create a viable political community under conditions of economic growth, modernization, and so forth, is by becoming a parliamentary democracy. Now, I've tried this on various audiences, and you get certain questions. I remember one eminent American specialist saying to me, who's going to be in charge under democracy? <laughs> it's, not, it's not going to be all those coastal educated Chinese you know, Arthur. It's going to be peasants. And you throw up your peasants, oh god. Then I've tried it several times about the third question somebody asked about Hitler. Wasn't he democratically elected? Wouldn't the same thing happen in China? Then I debated up at the Council on Foreign Relations against Chaz Freeman, and I suggested that democratic regimes that treat their own people well are likely to be better international citizens. And Chaz said, a democratic China would already have attacked Taiwan. But what does this tell us? It tells us that there's an idea that there's something fearful under the surface of Chinese society. You have this ethnic this homogenous ethnos that we see there, which is, gives us the Chinese history and unity and all the rest, but it can also run amok. And it, they, they're not to be trusted. They get hot-headed. They get xenophobic. Uh, they start wars. They elect Hitler. Uh, very dangerous. Now, of course, if you had genuine democracy in China, you would have some uh, major shifts. I think that uh, it would be very different from what we have now. Non-Chinese areas, such as Tibet and Xinjiang, would probably want genuine autonomy or even independence, just as the non-Russian parts of the USSR did. Some people think this is a disaster. But on the other hand, if you let people like that have their way, you then lay the foundations for genuinely friendly relations across the border. If you're not trying to hold them down, which you can't do in any case, uh, why not be friends with them? But among the provinces that are genuinely Chinese, historically, I think you could have stable parliamentary rule. These localities have strong local senses, but they also have a deep historical sense that they belong together. They're part of a historic nation. Now, if you look at India, India has a national parliamentary coalition government that's quite stable. It sits atop an incredible pyramid of local parties. And most of these local parties are confined to one province or another. And National powers are losing strength. But still, the coalition uh, is quite robust. Now, what does it do on things like extremists? If you're in a coalition, being in a coalition disciplines extremists. If you're too extreme, you're going to get kicked out of the coalition. You have to move toward the center. What about uh, military roles? Well, in India, there's a very clear ceiling on military expenditure. Because the typical peasant, those people that my friend was so fearful of, is going to say, why don't we spend money on rural development, on uh, water supply, on hospitals, on schools? Maybe we don't need to have a space program just yet. And I think that this could work in China. And I think that the regime would be much more stable because it would be based on legitimacy that came from the grassroots. Well, if I think that the regime is not preparing anything remotely like this, does that mean that I look at my sinological shadow and say, alas, uh, two more decades of communist winter, uh, dictatorship?
Well, I don't think so, actually. I think that the pressure within China is such that something's going to have to change. And I think there's one possibility, and this is what I want to end with, of how we could get a beginning of a democratic regime, even in the midst of a somewhat chaotic transition. If this wall of pebbles begins to break down, the pebbles themselves do not shatter. And in fact, some of them aren't pebbles. Some of them are quite substantial boulders. Certain pieces are going to survive. I think that Hong Kong would certainly survive and be able to function on its own. I think perhaps greater Hong Kong, including Guangdong, would be able to do the same thing. Who knows? Greater Shanghai might be able to. This is what happened during the periods of disorder in the 20s and 30s and 40s. There were lots of areas which most of the time were immune, and those continued to develop. Taiwan would certainly uh, survive. And if you got a some sort of equilibrium under this system, obviously the shift in power and resources would be to the south. Once you had a stabilization there, then I suspect that the organizational styles could be emulated elsewhere. In fact, this may happen with Hong Kong. I see the democratization of Taiwan has already created pressure in Hong Kong and in China and maybe even in Singapore uh, for democratization. Hong Kong is going to face the question of what they do with elections, whether they're going to go fully democratic in just a few years. Uh, if Hong Kong becomes democratic, then other, other parts of China want to become fully democratic too. The analogy I give you is with economic development. Initially, the idea was that modern economics should be confined to a few small zones. And these zones were duly created, the special economic zones. But as they started to get rich, people in well-established cities like Shanghai and Guangdong and so forth said, why, why should these appalling peasants be getting rich while we great Shanghainese are unable to get rich? Shouldn't we have the same privileges? And you got a kind of domino effect. The same thing uh, could happen with democracy. It may not be a likelihood, but I think that as we watch the Hong Kong elections, we should realize that there is a head of pressure building up in overseas China and in the South and, of course, that's exactly where the great transformative forces of 20th century Chinese history came from. We discount the ripple effects, and we discount the risks of building a structure in which we don't hedge against problems. The risk with China is that instead of being a solution, that it becomes a source of difficulties for the surrounding countries. Obviously, we should do what we can to foster positive developments in China. But we also have to be sure that we have faced squarely uh, the risks that lie ahead, even the most severe risks, and that we have taken them into consideration and taken due provision against them. Because I believe that the hard part of China's transition from communism, and I believe China is transiting out of communism, the really hard part is just beginning. And I just hope we're prepared for it. Thank you for listening to the Bradley Lectures podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The Bradley Lectures were given for more than a quarter century at AEI thanks to the generous sponsorship of the Lyndon Harry Bradley Foundation. AEI senior fellow Carlin Bowman and I hope you enjoy our revival of these lectures. If you do, please show your support by giving us a like and a comment and subscribing to our channel. And stay tuned for new episodes every other Monday as we bring the wisdom of the recent past to the most pressing issues of the present. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on the Bradley Lectures Podcast.